welcome back to part two of episode five, researching the palimpsest of Sweet Bar's history. In part one, doctors Dewana Waugh and Lynn Rainville and student Ashanti Brown shed light onto the layers of Sweet Bar's complicated history. And at the close, Dr. Rainville brings up Dorothy Sales, a descendant of our invisible founders. Dorothy worked at the college for 49 years, and in 2003, the college named the education building, which had originally been the bookshop, in memory of Dorothy Sales. Dr. Rainville conducted an interview with Dorothy, and while listening to the recording, I love how Dorothy often turns the tables on Lynn and ends up interviewing her. She's fascinated by all Lynn knows about the college's history, and about her family, too. In this excerpt, Dorothy explains how each morning she and her father walked the five miles together from their home on Coolwell Road to get to their jobs at Sweetbriar. Oh my gosh, so you left at five o'clock in the morning. How long did it take you to walk there? Two hours? An hour and a half? About an hour. About a few minutes from it. Uh-huh. Did, and you walked on the old stagecoach? No, 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 no. no. We would go through the bushes. Uh... We just come down through Barbara's Woods and come and come across there here. Well, that cutting up a whole lot. It took us two hours and we walked the road. See. Right, right. And when you got to Sweetbriar, were you walking on the road down to Sweetbriar? Did you cut I'm through all the fields? Going out by there and going up the hill to going out being warm feet and hands in the wintertime. You'd be near froze. Interesting. Wow. So one hour walk each way, five o'clock in the morning with your father. Um, and that was, and then Signora Holland sometimes would walk with you. Yeah, we used to walk back from work together. When you walked back from work. Mm-hmm. Right. Then after she quit work, she kept my kids for a while. Oh, she took care of your kids? Uh-huh. Oh. And so when my husband and I separated, mm-hmm. Alan got the name Pecky Man. Pecky's one of your children? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And uh, we were talking about Pecky yesterday that mm-hmm. a lot of people know my child by nickname. They don't know the real name. <laughs> and Miss C said, Dorothy, say, uh, I'll keep Pecky because the rest of them got thinking school age. Right. So in just one family, you have over 100 years of contributions to the founding of the college. So it was those sort of family stories. And then by the time I kept... Yeah, I kept doing the research. The Roses, um, the Branhams, um, the Joneses. You know, I just went family after family and then with individuals today who work at the college who are descended from those families. That, that's how I came up with the estimate that roughly a quarter to a third of our African-American hourly staff were directly descended from the enslaved community who are of African and or native descent. I was occasionally having genealogists who were surfing the web, you know, looking for information about their families, who would come across names that were familiar to them and would reach out and ask me if indeed this was their relative. And so along the way, Bethany Pace, who is a descendant of two enslaved individuals. So the Reverend Fletcher and the African-American Fletcher family are descended from two individuals, James and Lavinia, who later take the surname Fletcher. And they are born in the early uh, 1800s. And they are the progenitors of this, what today is a very large and successful family. Although part of the family is still in Amherst, but, but much of the rest of the family has migrated all along the eastern seaboard. And so Bethany had heard the stories, but had never been on the campus because she and, and some of her family members weren't certain, would they be welcome? Would they be comfortable? I mean, they really just, they did not know. So I invited her and her husband 
and her daughter to come and tour and see what they thought and if they thought they might want to bring more family members. And she and I and then one of her other relatives, Annette Anderson, worked to hold, for the first time, their family reunion at Sweet Bar. And they had a very moving ceremony in 08 at the burial ground, in addition to, you know, like a family conference slash reunion at the inn. Then they returned, and I want to say it was 2010. And then they had reached out to me and had arranged to come in the summer of 2015. And then as that spring unfolded, and I, of course, was having to tell them, you know, I'm not certain... Let's just say up until, you know, the successful lawsuit and the handing over the keys, if that had not worked, the Fletcher reunion was going to be the last event that would have been hosted at Sweet Bar. I asked Glenn to share the significance of honoring both our founder, Miss Indy, as well as our invisible founders. For me, I guess it's always very straightforward in that American history includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there is no American history without studying and appreciating the contributions of African Americans. Um, it's not two different things. It's not, or Native histories. It's not three different things. It, this is all the history of the various peoples and the lands that we are living on today. So, for all the time that Elijah Fletcher was alive, his family, I mean, he had four children and then his wife. And I mean, everybody was coming and going. But, you know, at any moment, even with potentially the occasional visiting relative of his, like one of his brothers, you never had more than 12 white people at Sweet Bar in the antebellum period at any given moment. I mean, unless it was a party. It would never be accurate to tell the history of a handful of people and somehow ignore hundreds of other individuals and their contributions. And then that theme continues. I mean, there's the period of slavery. Then there's in the postbellum period. I mean, Miss Indy, for example, she, obviously the mother of one daughter and her husband, they still are relying on, there are always many more African and Native peoples working for them as employees after the war ends than there are white people. And then certainly after Daisy dies and in turn her husband dies, Miss Indy is most often living alone with African-Americans, basically helping her get from day to day. And then in the 20th century, again, the individuals who transform this plantation landscape into a college in fairly short order to, in order to open the college uh, in the early 1900s are predominantly African and Native peoples and descendants of that enslaved community. When Ashanti and I spoke, she mentioned that Nanny Cashwell Christian had also been a midwife, but she didn't know much more. I asked Lynn about it, and she said she didn't know that Nanny had been a midwife, but wasn't surprised at all. So I asked Ashanti if she would please speak with her grandmother, Barbara Brown, Nanny's granddaughter. Ashanti not only spoke with her grandmother, she recorded their interview, too. And as a side note, Mrs. Brown is also the widow of the late Preston Doc Brown, who was stable manager for 33 years at the Harriet Howe Rogers Writing Center. Okay. Who is Nanny Cashel Christian to you? She was my grandmother. And how many kids did she have? She had nine. Roosevelt, Ernest, James, Maddie, Daisy, Cor, Mary Sue, 
Virginia, and Polly. How many sisters and brothers did she have? She had no brothers. She had two sisters, Kate and Gretchen. Um, what was she like? Strict. No nonsense. What was her profession? She was a licensed midwife and a maid. Uh, she delivered babies. She was the closest thing to a doctor because of where we lived. We lived in a very rural area. So she was called upon to do cuts, scratches, colds, whatever illness, she was there. What did she do at Sweetbriar? She worked for the Walkers, Ruby and Winnie. And did she have any children that worked at Sweetbriar? Yes, she had Daisy. Daisy worked in the laundry. Virginia worked in the laundry and worked for Mita Glass. I think at the time she was the president of Sweetbriar. And Polly worked at Mount San Angelo for the Revises. Where is she buried? In the Christian Aid Cemetery in Amos. And can you give a vivid memory that you have of her? Yes. As a child, I always had two braids, and they were always uneven. Because whenever anybody got cut, she would call me to clip my hair, to use my hair as a clotting agent. Another memory, at the age of 71, she fell walking from the walkers and broke her hip. Dr. Jack Faulkner was her doctor, and they told her she would not walk again. She said, let me go home and doctor myself. I will walk back in your office. And in six months, she walked back into that office. And they couldn't believe it. She used her own medicine. And some of her medicines, I still use them today. What did your grandfather do? The only thing I heard my mama say was granddaddy drove a horse and buggy. He hauled wood or delivered ice or worked in the field. I never heard her say much about him. Where did she live? My only childhood memories of her is living on Old Stage Road with her daughter, Polly. And I don't know where else they lived after they left Sweetbriar. I mean, any single descendant will always have more to add to this because as, as you know, the, the work that I did is still a sliver of the people that there are to connect with, the stories to learn. So, gosh, you know, that very important to continue to do that work and to interview family members. The questions Ashanti asked her grandmother opened doors to their family's past. And like Dorothy Sales, Mrs. Brown's responses help expand and enrich Sweetbar's story as well. Now, back to Dr. Waugh. And I think it's really important to take a moment and reflect on those stories so that we can really understand, as you mentioned, you know, how did this world that we live in now become possible? Who were the invisible people, these live people who, whose lives seemed inconsequential? Who were they and how did they help to shape our world? I think that's really important. And even in, in thinking about Sweetbriar's connections with slavery is important to a story. And it, I think there may be some level of discomfort for some to have that closer connection. And, you know, we want to forget. And that's, you know, part of memory, too. Forgetting is an intentional action. And, you know, there are choices made 
It doesn't mean because we tell these stories that other voices are lost. It just means we have a broader narrative. We have to have that larger, more encompassing story that we can tell where everyone can see themselves. Tell me about Dr. Waugh as a professor. I really enjoyed her class. Last semester, it was my first semester in college, so it was, it was a little rough, especially with COVID and everything getting adjusted. So there were times where I was just like completely out of it, you know, not wanting to even go to certain classes because it was so stressful. But her class specifically, it was kind of like a break. As a professor, she really like encouraged us. She was asking us questions like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? I got to research what I wanted to research, ask whatever questions I wanted to ask, go in the direction that I wanted to go into, just learning about me as a person, like where I came from. Dr. Walk really cares about her students more than just them being students, like as people too. So she would ask us, how are we doing? Check up on us, different stuff like that. So I really enjoyed her as a professor and as a person as well. As I mentioned earlier, Tawana Waugh is the only Black faculty member at Sweetbriar, and I ask how this affects her. Well, I'm certainly aware (laughs) that I am. Um, I was aware of of that fact coming in to Sweetbriar. A lot of the conversations um, has caused me to be very introspective. I'm also the first Black tenure track professor in the history of the college and so um, I guess to answer the question of you know my awareness and how does it make me feel it's both humbling frustrating <laughs> um, saddening maddening all rolled in one to to be aware of my racial identity in a very acute way for it to not be recognized by some, to be hyper-recognized by others, um, is a really unique experience. The reality is, I am different, and, and it's okay. Hopefully there will be more faculty of color to come. And you know, anytime you're kind of in that first wave status of anything, you know, whether it's race or gender or class or what have you, there are a lot of uh, confrontations with perceptions and realities that occur. But also being mindful that we can't be colorblind and we can't afford to be colorblind. We, we have to acknowledge how we self-identify, how others identify us, and sometimes How I identify myself may be very different than how someone else looks at me and identifies me. And we have to reckon with those moments. And there's growth in those moments where we can have that reckoning. A lot of what I've heard in more recent weeks has been this question about comfortability of having conversations about race and that it can be uncomfortable for people to engage in really frank conversations. People may have feelings hurt, but that's part of any relationship and that's part of any process, right? I mean, you don't have friendships that are always perfect and you're holding hands and jumping through the woods all the time. You know, you could argue that you have to get through some tears first to really get to that hearty 
laughter. And so in the same way, if you're building a community, we have to do the work to go through these moments of discomfort if we truly want a, a, a very diverse community. Do you have suggestions for how we as a college community can move forward as we confront our past? And how can we involve the Black Student Alliance? I've given a lot of thought in, in having worked with the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force this past year. President Wu established the Presidential Working Group on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Dewana is the chairwoman. The group was charged with creating a diversity action plan, which is still underway. I've given a lot of thought in, you know, the, the idea about painful histories particularly for those who are willing to acknowledge that some of this history feels uncomfortable and this history feels painful, um, to be open to having these frank conversations is, is one of the first steps so that you can hear. And, and listening is a critical human act to hear the pain or traumas that people have faced. We also have to understand that traumas aren't the domain of, of one group of people. Um, African-American history in general has had many um, traumatic events, but Black people don't have the, the patent on, on pain. BSA or Black Student Alliance is willing to help with having these conversations, but it's the responsibility of all parties in a community to participate, to acknowledge that if we all are living in this world and we all care about each other, we we want to learn more about each other. We want to be respectful. If you truly see people through those eyes that how I want to be treated, I want to echo that same treatment to other people, and I want that reciprocated to me. If everyone can see the humanity in everyone, um, and that humanity is broad, it, it, it has to encompass not just, you know, um, I'm a human and that's it, but I'm a woman, I'm Black, I am middle class, I live on campus, I'm from a rural area, uh, you know, all of those parts of your identity have to be acknowledged in order for us to truly understand in the community who each of us are. And I have to see everyone else's identities in that process as well. I ask how best we can refocus as members of the Sweet Bar community and as individuals too. You know, how how we teach the curriculum that is taught, you know, and then at home and, and how you embrace certain things at home that, you know, you don't necessarily think about. You may live in a community where you may not encounter people who are different from you. And a large part of that is incumbent on the individual. It always is incumbent on the individual to desire more, to learn more. Is there a possibility that more discussion of race should happen? Yes. Should that be something that is highlighted and discussed or seen? Yeah. Because it's in those differences that you build the community that you are hoping to have that is with an eye toward being a global world um, in as much as we can be. When Dewana and I spoke last summer, we met in front of Sweetbar House and walked to the plantation burial grounds together. The cemetery is on the way to the lower lake, but when you come to the upper lake, you turn left, onto the path that runs along the side of the lake. 
and ahead on the right, on the grassy hillside, you'll see a sign directing you to the opening in the wooded area. As you enter the woods, walking along the wide pathway, the temperature cools and the bird songs are amplified. Not far ahead, the path widens further, until you walk into an area of about two acres, encircled by the forest, but open to the sky. And scanning the area, you'll see the stones that serve as markers for some graves, and you'll see dips in the ground as well. Mingling among the graves are a few trees that, along with the sounds of nature, add to the sense of peace. There's also a bench where you can sit to soak up the significance of this sacred space. There's a stone marker and descriptor as soon as you come into the um, cemetery. Sweetbriar Plantation Burial Ground, sacred resting place of unknown founders who labored to build what has become Sweetbriar College. We are in their debt. And um, then there is an African-American heritage of Sweetbriar College placard that gives a history of the more than 60 lives that are buried here and what the stones represent, um, what some of the enslaved workers did in terms of their labor, and a request to please treat this sacred burial ground with respect. Dr. Wall proves that the study of history is dynamic and that it's full of adventure and discoveries. She enlightens us as to how simple questions can become the keys to reopening the doors to the past that we once thought were sealed. Reopening these doors sheds light on our invisible founders, allowing their stories to take their deserved places within our collective history. It's actually fitting that our students are continuing the research within the palimpsest of Sweetbar's history. They're revealing stories that provide us all with valuable perspective and inspiration. And these revelations are crucial to the Sweetbar community. They can serve as catalysts for respectful discussions that help us discover where we can go together. I'd like to thank all who helped make the telling of this story possible. Thanks again to the alumni of the Pod Squad who volunteer their time to listen and advise. They are L. Warner, Jane Dewar, Mitzi Morgan, Deanne Blanton, and Madge Faustein. And a huge thank you to student Ashanti Brown for making time to talk with me and for sharing her historical and personal research discoveries. Thanks also to Dr. Rainville for her years of research about Sweetbar's Invisible Founders and for sharing her remarkable stories associated with her research. And a hearty thank you to Dr. Waugh for sharing her perspectives and for encouraging us to expand our minds to encompass a world of others' perspectives. And one more thank you to Joshua Harris, the Assistant Professor of Performing Arts and Music. He's also a composer and allowed me to use his composition for a string quartet called Septimus III. Take care.